end of November, post-Thanksgiving low. Hopefully the tryptophan is worn off. Uh, you're energized again. Um, but we've been in a series uh, about service for these past weeks. Um, just looking at service in Scripture. And it's kind of timely uh, for this Christmas season because as we study what we've been studying, we realize that the life of Jesus didn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem, but that Jesus existed as a part of a trinity for eternity. We looked two weeks ago at Philippians 2. And the path that Jesus blazed from the throne room of heaven to that manger in a sermon called Rising Downward. Just looking at our call to serve and take up the heart of Jesus Christ, which was a heart of service. And then last week, we looked at John 13 where Jesus got down on his knees and washed the disciples' feet. And we looked at how as the body of Christ, we're called to care for one another within the body of Christ. There's over 51 another's in the New Testament that you can't do off on your own, but we're called to do within the body as we serve one another. So as we preached on that just last week, I wanted to bless some folks uh, just with some simple Amazon gift cards. But we had a Discovering City Life last weekend, which is where you get to know more about the church, uh, know more about becoming a member. And Christine Montgomery was there, but she's been serving on SLT long before she ever went to that class because as soon as she got to the church, she had a heart to serve. So I just want to bless you with this. Merry early Christmas. Now, thank you. Thank you for your heart to serve. And then also I wanted to give one to Zach Pothier because it was just a couple weeks ago. He's serving back there right now. He serves back there all the time. But it was his week off. And he showed up early to set up just new technology, stuff I don't even know what's going on. But I just trust them that, hey, our live stream looks good. Everything looks good in here. So I, I want to bless him as well. Steph's going to run that back to you. But can we just thank him as well for serving? His wife is back in kid life right now serving our kids. There's so much that gets done behind the scenes where people are really blessing us as we sit in here and get to enjoy the word of God. So if you have your Bibles tonight, we're going to turn to Exodus 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. But as you turn there, and if you don't have a Bible on you or you don't have it on your phone, there's Bibles under your pews that you can also grab. But as you turn there, if you're taking notes, the, the sermon title tonight is, is simply Down and Out. And what's so beautiful about the grace of God is that from the cross of Jesus Christ, grace flows down and grace flows out to the down and out. We've talked about that before, but what I want to talk about tonight is how we are called to rise downward. We're called to downward mobility. We're called to look to others and their needs above our own, as it talks about in Philippians 2, 3. So our service is called not only to, to take a knee and, and step down and serve those around us, but it's also called to go out. We're not called just to serve in blue and black T-shirts here on a Saturday night. We're called to serve the community and the city that God has placed us in. But just to get us thinking this direction tonight, I do want to read Exodus chapter 19. I want to read verses 1 through 7, and then I want to pray as we dive into God's word tonight. So it says in Exodus 19, verse 1, it says exactly two months after the Israelites left Egypt, speaking to the Exodus, hence the name of the book, <laughs> it says they arrived in the wilderness of Sinai. And after breaking camp at Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and set up camp there at the base of Mount Sinai. It says then Moses climbed the mountain to appear before God. The Lord called to him from the mountain and said, give these instructions to the family of Jacob. Announce it to the descendants of Israel. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You know how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you will obey me and keep my covenant, you will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. 
So Moses returned from the mountain and called together the elders of the people and told them everything that the Lord had commanded him. Lord God, we thank you for tonight. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Old and New Testament and the ways it speaks to our lives and how we follow you. God, we thank you for how something in Exodus can, can take our perspective on church, our perspective as your people, and shape it and reform it, Lord God. So we say tonight, as Steph was saying in worship, we open our lives up to you. God, we simply ask that you would shift perspectives where they need to be shifted. God, I pray that you would bring hope where there's discouragement. God, I pray that you bring faith where there's a lack of faith, Lord God, where there's unbelief. And I just pray that as we dig into your words, your Holy Spirit would be here ministering to each and every heart and each and every mind as only you can. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and everybody said, amen. So Steph shared that story about those people that adopted. Uh, Steph and I adopted earlier in February of this year from India, and, and our son Raj, he experienced his first Thanksgiving this year with the family, and, and he actually spent time with every member of the family when it comes to grandparents, cousins, aunts, and uncles, and uh, my side is pretty big, so we had two tables for grown-ups, two kiddie tables set up, and then Raj was in a high chair, so we were rolling deep at, at that gathering. I don't know how many people you did Thanksgiving with, but I pray you were blessed and you ate well, and we found out Raj also loves pumpkin pie. Side note, that's free. If you ever want to get Raj excited, show him some pumpkin pie with cream on it, he'll go nuts. But we've been talking about the Last Supper and how Jesus has this big meal with his disciples. And I don't know their table set up. I'd probably bet that it wasn't like Da Vinci showed it where they got a huge table and then all sat on one side, right? I kind of doubt that's how it was. But uh, when Jesus pulls his disciples together for their last meal, before they get to digging in, before he institutes communion for the first time, this significant moment in history, before he does any of that, he gets down on his knees, takes a towel, and washes their feet. We've been looking at this account for a couple weeks now. What we noted last week, what's interesting is that John doesn't give a detailed account in his gospel of the institution of the first communion. And we see in John 6 where Jesus is talking about it in the gospel of John, so it's not that he doesn't think it's important or he doesn't think it's significant. But many scholars have, have convincingly stated that John knew when he wrote his gospel that the people that would hear his gospel were already familiar with the gospel of Mark, where there is a detailed account of the first communion. That he was looking to supplement that with accounts and theology that would deepen their understanding of what the Last Supper, of what that first communion and what the Eucharist was all about. So if John gives us his account to deepen our understanding, the question we asked last week is, well, what are we supposed to understand deeper in this passage? When Jesus institutes communion, this reflection on the body of Christ broken for us, and he sandwiches it in the book of John between this act of service, washing their feet, and then right after the account of the supper that Jesus said, hey, love one another as I have loved you. And he does all of the above during the Passover meal. And this would have carried deep meaning for anybody that heard this in, in Jesus' time and in his culture, because the Passover is the turning point of the Exodus, what we were just reading from, the book of Exodus. And maybe you're from the generation where you hear about Moses and the Ten Commandments. You go back to Charlton Heston's movie, The Ten Commandments, right? Maybe you're from my generation where you go back to a cartoon called The Prince of Egypt. Hopefully you're not going to, like, Ridley Scott's forgettable Exodus from a couple years ago. That, was, that movie was a wash, <laughs> But Exodus is more than just an isolated event that we can isolate to two and a half hours in a movie. And the Passover is more than just a plot twist that allowed the Israelites to escape from Egypt. 
was galactic in scale. And it speaks to the message of the entire Bible and God's entire plot of redemption and redeeming mankind. The Passover took place after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, where freedom would finally be struck. And the Passover, it promised deliverance. The Passover, it promised redemption. And there were specific instructions for the Passover meal, and it all centered around a lamb. Specific instructions about how it was to be prepared and consumed by each family and each household and its blood to be applied to the doorposts of that home. And when the firstborn of Egypt would be struck down, the homes with the lamb's blood would be passed over. And soon thereafter, those homes and those families would be freed. And just as every revolution has an icon or a symbol, the Bible's redemption is symbolized by this image of a lamb, a lamb that's slain, a lamb that's sacrificed for each family and each household in the world. And from Isaiah 53's prophecy of this suffering servant that dies as a lamb led to the slaughter, to John the Baptist who points to Jesus and says, hey, here's the lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world, all the way to Revelation where Jesus is uh, spoken of as the lamb of God. Jesus perfectly carried and ultimately fulfilled this image of a lamb that's slain and broken for us. You know, the body of Christ broken, represented in communion, and this Passover dinner was a consummation of this picture of the Passover lamb in Scripture. Broken for Israel, its, its blood spread on the doorposts in Egypt, and Jesus would be broken for the world, and his blood was applied to the doorposts of the universe. But in the book of Exodus, after the Passover, after the exodus from Egypt and the Red Sea and those accounts, God draws his people to Mount Sinai, led by Moses. And I love that God meets the Israelites in the wilderness. It's not in a nation. It's not in a city with walls where any, anybody can make some kind of political claim to ownership. What God was speaking to the Israelites had global implications. It had implications for the whole world. And God, to this point, he has spoken to various men in history to Abraham, spoken to Jacob, but here for the first time, God speaks to his people, the Israelites. So we can't underestimate or undervalue or undersell what he tells them. And he tells them, as we read in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6, he says, and you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. This is the message you must give to the people of Israel. God met the Israelites in the wilderness and tells them this, hey, you're my priests. And in our Western culture, what do you think of when you hear a priest or the word priest? Well, a priest, duh, right? <laughs> the black garb, the white collar. But I think a lot of our ideas of priests in our culture have been maybe stereotyped by cinema and alike. Priests are hardly the leading role in any meaningful cinema unless it's a campy horror film, which you'll have to, uh, to convince me later is any kind of meaningful cinema. But uh, more often than not, in shows or movies, the priest is confined to like the four walls of the church. And when a hero has a crisis or a hero is dealing with guilt or a, or a hero needs some fatherly advice, he'll go to the priest over at the church or over at the cathedral and he'll either go to confession or he'll get that advice from the priest. And then the hero will return to the front lines and the priest will kind of retreat back to his priestly duties somewhere altogether separate and set apart. You know, when we think of priests, we may think of an isolated career or a class of people within traditional religion. And to a certain extent, we see this reflected in the Old Testament as well. But I remember the first time I read Exodus 19 as an adult, and I paused, and I was like, wait, were we all called to be priests? 
Not some kind of just over there role for something within religion where the priests do their work over there while we're kind of in the real world. But you see in Sinai, God was making a covenant with his people for them to be flesh and blood representatives on earth of him. Now the condition of this covenant was faithfulness to God's laws. And due to their unfaithfulness starting right at the foot of the mountain with the golden calf, they didn't walk in that model. So Israel goes on to be disobedient for generations. You begin to read the Old Testament where they failed again and again, and God eventually punishes them and takes them into exile. The Old Testament prophets proclaim her to be a laughingstock to the world more than any kind of representation of God to the world. But when Christ comes in the New Testament, offering us righteousness under his blood, the opportunity and privilege that Israel lost, becoming a nation of priests and a holy nation, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, it was recaptured. We read him. 1 Peter 2.9, where it talks about reclaiming this opportunity, pointing back to Sinai in Exodus, where Peter writes, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, echoing those words from Mount Sinai. He says, you're God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Again, it points right back to Exodus. But no longer is the priesthood about lineage and inherited privilege We're all called to it, every one of us. In the Old Testament, priests serve as mediators between God and man. But when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, hey, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who gave his life up for all men. And when we read about Pentecost, the Holy Spirit doesn't fall on some people over here and a couple over here. It fell on everyone in that upper room. See, the the New Testament changes everything. More specifically, Jesus changes everything. Yet I think sometimes we still subscribe to the Old Testament picture and depiction of priests or of ministry where pastors are kind of a master of ceremonies that conduct services for people to enjoy and watch. But how does Jesus change things if he does indeed change everything? Well, first, any monopoly on God's access is unbiblical. We all have equal access to God's presence. But you know, in the Old Testament, when God makes this covenant with the Israelites, he doesn't just have them step right into his presence. He doesn't say, hey, just come up on the mountain and meet with me. He makes them prepare themselves for days before they could approach the mountain and his presence. They had to consecrate themselves first. They couldn't simply come as they were. They couldn't just march up the mountain as Moses did, and anybody that would try that would die. The fact that limits were placed on this mountain, it just highlights the holiness of God's dwelling. It highlights the holiness of his presence, and it highlights our brokenness. And it's fascinating to me that the breakdown of of the population of Israel around this mountain is reflected in in the layout of the tabernacle and the layout of the temple's construction. It says in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 2, it says that Moses would approach God with Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and the 70 elders. But Moses and Moses alone would approach the Lord while the elders would have access to the mountain, but not its summit. So this corresponds to the holy place in the temple. But then you got the rest of Israel that would stay at the foot of the mountain, corresponding to the outer parts of the temple where the lay people could gather. The division of the temple reflected God's holy presence at Sinai and these limits on access. Yet, when Jesus comes and he changes everything and he dies on the cross, says in the Gospels that the veil in the temple was torn. This veil separated the holy of holies, the holiest place in the temple from the rest of the temple where men dwelt. The veil signified man's sin, and only the high priest could go in once a year to offer atonement for sin. And Jewish tradition and Jewish history tells us that this veil, this curtain, was not just some 
little curtain you put in front of your window. It was 60 feet high. The Jewish tradition said it was inches thick. Like it wasn't just some little thin piece of cloth. No man was going to just tear this from top to bottom. But it says when Jesus died on the cross, it tore from top to bottom. Any barrier to access to God's presence was obliterated, and it was obliterated by the hand of God himself. Hebrews 10 points to this when it says, Dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the veil into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. There's no monopoly on God's presence. There's no veil or curtain that still hinders our access. We can step into God's presence, as it says here, with confidence, trusting in the blood of Christ. Not with any kind of swagger because of anything we've done, but because of what Jesus did on the cross and our humbly accepting that grace, we can step into God's presence. Now, I think if I asked you when you came in tonight, do you think there's a monopoly on God's presence and, and meeting with him? I don't think anybody here would have said yes. But how often do we act like it? You know, letting those with the mic spoon feed us instead of digging into the very word of God for ourselves. Behaving like there's a special access to God's presence during worship on the weekend that's wholly unavailable Monday through Friday. Right? Outsourcing the ministry of the church to a select few who just seem to have the right personality, the right level of passion, and I'll leave it up to them. But the pastor that you admire for his ministry on that podcast or on Hillsong channel, they don't have any different access to God's word or his presence than you do. They just avail themselves to it often, again and again and again throughout their life. That person you admire in that Bible study or that life group that has such a, a great grasp of God's word, they don't have a different Bible than you. Maybe they got a better translation. Maybe you need to stop reading the King James Version, pick up the New Living. I don't know. Different strokes for different folks. But maybe it's just that they've availed themselves to the word of God every day, again and again, digging in. See, God's availability, he's available for all of us. The question is, will we avail ourselves to his availability for ourselves? Nothing holds us back but ourselves. There's no monopoly on God's presence. That whole kind of thought process is unbiblical, and it's probably from the enemy. So that monopoly on God's access is unbiblical, but so is a monopoly on ministry. You know, you, you think, what's the role of a faithful priest? Pray for people encourages people, maybe confronts people lovingly, grieves with those who grieve, uh, rejoices with those who rejoice. And as a result, people feel loved, people feel secure, people feel nurtured and blessed. But we often drift in the modern church told this, towards this Old Testament model where we hire a minister and the congregation pays the clergy to do the work of ministry. Only according to the New Testament, there aren't two classes of believers within the church. Neither are there two sets of expectations within the church. Sure, responsibilities may vary, and that's ordered by God, but the expectations remain the same for everyone. The Great Commission applies to everybody. The call to make disciples applies to everybody. The call to be God's witnesses Monday through Friday, Saturday and Sunday, that's for every living and breathing Christian and follower of Jesus Christ. It says in Ephesians 4.12 that a pastor or a teacher's role, these positions within the church, their role is to equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You know, when I go to a doctor, I expect them to treat me, but I don't expect them to make me a doctor. You know, if I go to a lawyer, I expect them to give me great advice and help me through whatever trouble I'm in, but I don't expect them to make me a lawyer. 
And I think sometimes we can get a perspective where when we go to a pastor for ministry, we expect those, those leaders to minister to us, but we don't expect them to make us ministers. And yet, I was reading a, a commentary this week where it says ministry is the only profession that retains nothing to itself. Gives away all its knowledge for free and invites those served to do the same work. It says ministry is the only profession that retains nothing to itself. Gives away all its knowledge free and invites those served to do the same work. You know, in history, whenever the church could implement Ephesians 4.12 and do it well, it's grown. Because God wins when his kingdom grows. Those doing the equipping win because they see people that they've loved and, and cared for serving God and doing his work. Those in the community, the city that the church is placed in win because there's a unified, multi-talented, uh, diverse body of Christ ministering there. And then those doing the actual work win because they've stepped off the bleachers and actually stepped into the playing field. You know, ministry within the church, you sit under ministry in order to step into ministry. You're never meant to sit permanently on the bleachers as a spectator. And I like that because somebody asked me just last week, had I ever been to an NFL game? And I've been to a few, but when I'm there and I'm watching them play, man, I get the itch. I want to throw a football. I want to I tackle somebody. <laughs> I want to hit someone. And I don't care if there's 80,000 people watching me in a stadium. I'd rather play than sit there and spend $10 for a soda, right? I want to get out on the field and in the action. It's the same in the church. You know, we've talked about Jesus' first miracle at that wedding at Cana and the spectators, the non-servants, those that were out there partying in the wedding, they didn't witness the miracle. The people that witnessed the miracle were the servants that did the work behind the scenes. Now, how many miracles do we miss because we're not willing to serve? How many miracles do we miss because we forget what preceded Jesus' first miracle, these acts of service and the work that these servants put in? And he used the household servants. You don't need a degree from seminary to make a difference serving. You simply need a willingness to love people and meet needs when you see a need. I love what Martin Luther King Jr. once said, that everybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. You know, with that perspective, Martin Luther King led a movement and changed the nation. And God calls his people in the Old Testament a holy nation. God doesn't call them to be a kingdom of priests, isolated and set apart. He calls them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation among nations, both set apart and sent. We've talked about it before that when the Bible talks about being set apart, it's not about geography. It's about the condition of our hearts. That, that spiritual difference doesn't demand a, a physical dif distance. Sorry, spiritual difference doesn't demand physical distance. Being set apart doesn't demand that we live separate from the world. It's talking about the condition of our hearts and our souls. In fact, in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were distanced and physically set apart in exile in the Old Testament, it was because they weren't living spiritually set apart among the nations. They had a calling to be a holy nation. They had a calling to be consecrated unto God, but they had become like the nations around them rather than like God and a light to the nations around them. But to the Israelites in exile in the Old Testament, as you read through the prophets, we see that there's a promise of another exodus. There was the exodus in the book of Exodus, but we see that there's one much grander in scale that's coming. It says in Isaiah 49, verse 6, speaking to Jesus, the Lamb of God, speaking to the Messiah and the fulfillment of this Passover imagery, it says in Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, you, speaking to this Messiah, 
will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. We see in the Old Testament that Operation Israel wasn't big enough for God. He wanted to do something that encompassed the whole world. He wants to see all saved and none perish, as Paul would write in his epistles. And it's why we see elsewhere in Isaiah's prophecies, he says at one point that the Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. Now, this is like scandalous to the Israelites in the Old Testament because those were their enemies. Not only were the Egyptians and the Assyrians their enemies, but they were sworn enemies of each other. And Isaiah is saying God would even reconcile them so that they could worship him together. We see this pattern in, in Acts 1-8 in the New Testament, in the early church, how it was supposed to be witnesses from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Judea and Samaria, they didn't like each other. <laughs> they hated each other. There was division, there was racism, there was animosity. And this demonstrates what Paul would later spell out in his epistles, that God's redemption and his acts of reconciliation in our lives, they're not supposed to be left in isolation. We're not supposed to have this monopoly on God's presence. We're not supposed to have a, a monopoly on the ministry. There's not supposed to be a monopoly on the message either. You know, our vertical reconciliation with God is something that should spark horizontal reconciliation, drawing men to Jesus and reconciling us to one another. Our command, again, by Jesus to love God that Jesus gives us is immediately followed with this command, hey, love one another as well. Just as Israel was reminded by Isaiah the implications of their release was much broader and global in scale than just about them and them themselves. The church was reminded that the implications of Jesus and what he did on the cross wasn't just for those people up in that upper room. It was for the world, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. If redemption, if discipleship, if church growth was going to happen in Jerusalem, it wasn't going to stay in Jerusalem. You know, if, if redemption... And discipleship happens, happens within the four walls of a church. Genuinely, it's not going to stay within the four walls of the church. Since the days of Exodus till now, God has been in the business of breaking people out of bondage and slavery to sin and bringing them life. And he does it through his church. He does it through his people. He does it in Exodus through Moses. And I love in Exodus chapter 7 verse 1, God says to Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. When Moses is going to confront Pharaoh, it says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Now, that sounds like something Moses would have requested. Like, if God told me to go confront, like, the leader of a nation, I'd be like, hey, well, give me your power. Make me like you to this person. But this wasn't Moses' idea. It was God's idea because God needs a body to be like God in the culture and the world around us. See, Jesus, we celebrate at Christmas, he became Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, as we sing in Christmas carols, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And Jesus himself would say in the Gospels, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. No one painted a perfect picture of God the Father like Jesus did. Jesus is the image of God in the flesh. When we read about Jesus in the Gospel, his heart for people, what he did for people, that's the heart of God for those people. Again, no one painted a perfect picture like Jesus did, but Jesus is resurrected. And God still wants a body to show the world just who God is and what he is like. A flesh and blood representation of himself to the world. Our call is the church. Our call is priests and ministers. And again, our call as priests isn't some secluded role 
away from the front lines. One of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is Phinehas, and I wanted to name my kid that, and we could have called him Finn, but, you know, your wife has to agree to these things. And, and he was a prominent priest in Exodus and Numbers, and, and, and when the army went out, the priest didn't stay behind in the temple. He was at the front of the, of the military going towards the front line because, again, we as priests, we're not called to live some secluded role, but we're called to be a light in the world, a light to the world that's in the world. And introducing communion, again, over the Passover meal would have been significant because there were original instructions in Exodus for this meal. In Exodus 12, verse 11, it says, these are your instructions for eating this meal. Be fully dressed, wear your sandals, and carry your walking stick in your hand. God's telling them, hey, eat this meal, but know when you're done, very soon thereafter, I'm calling you to move. I'm calling you to get out of here because I'm going to free you and I'm going I'm to spark your redemption. And in the same way, when we receive the good news, Ephesians 6 talks about how our battle is not against flesh and blood. There's armor for us to put on, but it also talks about how our feet are to be fitted with the, the gospel of peace. It says, for shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. Because when we take communion, when we celebrate the good news of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, we should be mindful that we do it with spiritual shoes on because we're called to go, because we're commissioned to ministry in the world. Jesus washed the disciples' feet before the institution of communion, before this Passover meal, as this reminder that, hey, we're called to be ready to go. We're commissioned. We're called. We celebrate his body as the body in order to be his body, his hands and his feet. And we celebrate communion once a month here at City Life. If you haven't caught on to the pattern, it's every first Saturday of the month we celebrate communion as a church. We want to do it regularly enough that we're celebrating communion as a church, but we want to do it spaced out enough to where it wasn't just, doesn't just become a ritual. doesn't just become rote routine where we just do it, oh, we're taking communion again, and then we're back on with church. No, that's the danger in ritual. That ritual becomes nothing more than ritual itself. And communion, again, is symbolic of something so much greater. Paul would say in Galatians 2.20 that it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. That the driving force for Paul was no longer personal gain or dominance, but it was as Christ had given himself up to serve, he had a heart for service as Christ did. He would go on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is verses 8 through 10, he says, We're pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. Paul's, it's like he's saying the body of Christ was broken for me so that the life of Christ can be seen in my body. He would go on in 2 Corinthians 11 to list these sufferings, giving this like blow-for-blow blow account of what he had to endure in his ministry. But he's not just talking about physical beatings. He's talking about a way of life, this lifestyle of service that Paul lived. Because in his planning churches and his taking offerings for the poor and traveling endlessly, pouring himself out, teaching and preaching to various churches, he was a part of something bigger than himself. As we read the book of Acts and as we read his accounts, we realize it was hard. It cost him something. But that's how service works. For somebody's feet to be washed, somebody has to pick up the towel and the basin and get to washing feet. For somebody to receive, somebody has to give, somebody else has to count the cost. And God seeks to continue to give the world life through the body of Jesus Christ, through that body now, his church. And these gatherings, this coming together as the church, as precious as it is, it's to remind us, to inspire us, 
to instruct us to serve the worlds we find ourselves in. Some of us hail from Smithfield, Carrollton, Portsmouth, Suffolk, Chesapeake, Norfolk, wherever you are, God's put you there to serve that region, that workplace you're a part of, that school you go to. You're called to be a minister. You're called to be a priest, to be the body of Christ. And the the ministry of the body of Christ and the ministry of the church is not going to be fulfilled in this room. Again, as precious as this is, our our purpose, our calling is going to be fulfilled out there. Jesus and his literal body didn't stay in the four walls of that upper room after having the Last Supper and instituting communion. Neither did his disciples. And neither should we stay in these four walls. There should be no monopoly on access, no monopoly on ministry, no monopoly on this message, this good news, this gospel we have. And when we take communion, like we will next week, you know, it's beautiful. We, we come up, we take the elements. Sometimes families step aside to take communion together. Spouses come together to take communion together. Sometimes we take it as individuals. And each one of us, we, we take a look inward. Because Paul commands us to, as we talked last week before taking communion, to take an assessment of our hearts. Where is Christ in our hearts? Where is Christ in our lives? Is he at the center? But we can't leave a service with communion with our focus solely inward. We've said it a million times here, a faith that's solely inward focused is out of focus. If I could have the worship team come up. We all enjoyed Thanksgiving. It was football all day. I don't know if you enjoyed the football. I got a little bit, um, uh, but maybe you didn't. Maybe you don't even watch football. But football is a lot like the huddle before the play. We come to church. We, we gather around each other. We catch the vision. We're equipped to go and do what we need to do out there. But at some point, you have to break the huddle. At some point, you have to go out and run the play and walk in the purpose and calling of the church, which, again, it's not fulfilled here. It's fulfilled out there where God's put us, not as spectators, but as ministers, as servants, not just of the church in our blue and black shirts, but out there in the uniform we wear to work and in the classroom God's placed us in. You know, every week, before service, when we have pre-service prayer and when we huddle up as, as ministry leaders here before service, I pray, man, God, let us set the table so that your Holy Spirit can show up and just move. I pray that every week. And, and as I was preparing this sermon, I realized, man, I need to start praying after service that we as the church would go out and set the table out there for the Holy Spirit to move. Because that's where truly our calling and the Holy Spirit's work is fulfilled. It's not fulfilled here. We're equipped here. We're challenged here. We're inspired here. We're built up. We're transformed here. All of that's amazing, but it's so that we can be the body of Christ out in the world, a representation of God in flesh and blood. And will we do it perfectly? (laughs) No. But that's why the cross is so beautiful. That's why grace is so beautiful. We're not disqualified. We can pick ourselves up. But that won't happen. God's not going to move unless we move. Unless we embrace this role of of a kingdom of priests, a role of ministry, the role of being Christ's hands and feet. And when we fully embrace that, people will no longer ask, well, where was God when I was suffering? Where was God when I hit unemployment? Where was God when I was hungry? Where was God when I was lonely? Because if the body of Christ is truly the body of Christ, they'll already have the answer because we'll have been there. But how do you step into those moments? I don't think you have to set your mind to searching as much as you just have to set your mind to serving giving a helping hand, having an eye for when there's a need. Do it with no expectation of a thank you. Matter of fact, saying thank you more than you expect people to say thank you to you. Again, grieve with those who grieve. 
rejoice with those who rejoice and be sincere. And realize that because God gave you everything, you don't have to live life like anyone owes you anything. Because God gave you everything you'll need. Realize that to give back to humanity is to give back to Jesus. Where Jesus says in the book of Matthew, what you did for the least of these, you, you did unto me. What we're able to do because of what Anthony Robinette is doing and, and coming alongside them, what we do for those people, we do it unto the Lord. What we do for those students when we get stuff from Micah's backpack and those bags are delivered to kids with hunger issues and food anxiety, not knowing where the next meal is coming from, we do it unto the Lord. When we bag groceries up and we take it to College Square and we pray over them and we pray over the people that will allow us to pray for them, we do that work unto the Lord. To give back to humanity is to give back to Jesus, this Savior who left the throne room of heaven to serve us, to be obedient even unto death on the cross, to serve us. When you can grasp that, all of a sudden, putting out next step cards, stacking chairs doesn't seem so bad. Going out into the world and loving that person who kind of rubs us the wrong way doesn't seem so bad. When you realize what God has done, Jesus did for each and every one of us. You know, if we could stand, I want to go back into worship. And maybe you're here tonight and you hear everything I've said, but when you hear me talk about people that are crying out to where was God when this happened? Where was God when that happened? Maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're at a point where you're crying out to God. It says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. You know, God rescues us from those seasons of life where it feels like we're the ones in exodus, where we're the ones that are enslaved, where we're the ones that are oppressed. And you know what sparked the course of redemption throughout Scripture? This universal move of God toward redemption was the Israelites crying out at the beginning of Exodus. And this too is central to the Bible, that God always hears our cry. From the moment Abel's blood cried out from the ground, God hears the cry of the oppressed. He hears the cry of those that are hurting. Over, well over a dozen times in the book of Psalms, David talks about crying out to God. So if that's you tonight, I encourage you as we go back into worship, cry out to God. Maybe not a physical shout, but man, just asking God to meet us where we are. It says in the book of James, when we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. It says in Jeremiah, speaking to the body of Christ, speaking to God's people, man, when you seek him with all your heart, he'll be found. God, we ask that you will be found by us tonight. God, where we, again, need hope for discouragement, where we need faith for doubt, where we need strength for weakness. God, we just ask that you would make that exchange tonight, that we'd be able to, as if we were at the very foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, lay down what we need to lay down and leave it. And God, pick up our calling to be a royal priesthood, to be a holy nation. God, to be your hands and feet. Jesus, we thank you. God, we thank you that for every fear there's an empty grave, as we're just going to sing in a moment, God. But we cry out to you in this place. Meet us here, Jesus.